Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahay. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Hi and welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible people uh, and my next guest today has, uh, has got a depth of wisdom and knowledge uh, uh, in all sorts of areas to be quite honest. Um, He's a founding partner. This is Stuart Henry, founding partner of A Better Version. And this is an organization very similar to the work that I do that is dedicated to helping individuals, teams and business uh, assess, recognize and develop their emotional intelligence. Essentially, how can you improve by improving your EQ? which is essentially what this whole podcast is based on, right? Now, Stuart uh, has got a huge background at a very senior level in the telecoms industry and has been involved in consultancy for a number of years, but he's also quite involved in sports. So, so Stuart, um, we were having a brief chat and you were talking about uh, maybe starting a podcast of your own and with your sporting connections. Tell me about these sporting connections. How did that all come about? So I've been a, a rugby fanatic my whole life. And, and when I was about six years old, my dad's best friend, Uncle Terry, worked in this place called Leicester, which was in a place called England. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I was watching rugby special and there was a team called Leicester Tigers appeared. And I sort of went as a six-year-old, oh, Uncle Terry, I'll support them. And, and as I've said to him several times since, uh, thank goodness you didn't work in Scunthorpe. But I've been a Leicester Tigers fan for over 50 years, was lucky enough to get a box there. Uh, and bit by bit, all the players got to know that box number four was a safe haven if, uh, if they needed a hide. So lucky enough to get to know a lot of the players back in the day. And, and I've maintained relationships with them over the last 20, 25 years. And uh, I'm still a rugby fanatic, still a Leicester Tigers supporter. And, uh, I, you know, I'm lucky enough to, to have some, some pretty good relationships with some, some interesting fellas. I, I can imagine you've had some very, very inspired conversations and, and seen a side to rugby that many of us will never experience, to be quite honest. I think that's probably true, uh, most of which uh, is, is probably uh, unpublishable. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and a lot of it probably I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, look, we've we've had some fabulous times, and I, you know, again, I'm I'm very very lucky to have been in a position to get to know these guys, and uh, and to a man, to an individual, they are tremendously good people, you know, without exception. Even the ones who might be quite famous for being a bit uh, a bit punchy and having a bit of an attitude and maybe a little bit of an outsized ego. At heart, they're all wonderful people. I don't know what it is about rugby players, you know, I, I, and I, I, I totally get what you're saying. Every single rugby playing friend I've ever come across has turned out to be a really decent guy. And uh, and I'm not entirely sure what it is. What is it that sets rugby apart, do you think, from 
other sports then? I, I think for me at a simplistic level, there's a there's a, a lack of patience around nonsense. So, you know, they, they don't tolerate a lot of nonsense. So where where somebody gets a little bit ahead of themselves or the ego gets a little bit inflated, there are plenty of people in the training squad more than happy to bring them back down to earth. So there's, there's a sort of, there's an honesty about it, an integrity. And, you know, there's a, there's a great book uh, called Legacy, um, uh, which was written about, it was trying to capture, a guy called Jim, James Care wrote the book, and it was trying to capture the essence of what is it that makes the All Blacks, you know, the single most successful sporting team in the history of global sport not just rugby. And then what are the lessons you can learn from that book and, and sort of translate into the business world? And I, 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 being a, a, a very professional podcast, I can't use the exact quote, but let's just say <laughs> the All Blacks have two things. One is, let's just call it no idiots. It's not idiots. It's That's a slightly right, yeah. different word, but we don't, we don't tolerate idiots. If you, if you're an idiot, if you think you're bigger than the team, you'll never succeed in the team. And the second thing, which I absolutely adore, is they talk about sweep the sheds. And sweeping the sheds basically means at the end of every session, be it a training session or a match, everybody tidies up. They leave the changing room, the shed, in a better state than when they found it. And it's about keeping people humble. It's about you know teamwork. It's about, doesn't matter if you're the most successful player in history, when you've got a broom in your hand, you're the same as your mates. And it's a wonderful grounding thing. It's interesting that you've mentioned this book, Legacy, because I literally only finished reading that last week. And and you're absolutely right. It's probably one of the best books I've read for a long, long time. So there's a book recommendation recommendation for you straight away, yeah, folks. Legacy. And I can't remember the author. Can you remember the author there, Stuart? It's James Care, I think. James Care. Uh, and the other thing that I picked up by this book, I don't know if they specifically talk about, but uh, I, I certainly took that message away. And there's something around emotional resilience. Uh, now, you and I were, were, were talking uh, just before we started. And we we're talking about how, you know, many organizations get into short termism when the going gets a bit tough. And, you know, we're talking about the financial situation for many organizations right now. Uh, and what they tend to do is make almost knee-jerk, reactive sort of decisions around, okay, so what can we cut out? What can we stop doing to get us through through this phase? And I, I was uh, in the thick of it in the police service back in 2008, where, you know, the public sector had to make significant austerity cuts to align with the financial crisis that we were going through, and how different organisations responded differently to the challenges in front of them. So we're talking about, you know, uh, many organizations right now are cutting their training budgets. Uh, they're saying, well, you know, we need to stop tra spending so much money on our staff training. I I'm not entirely sure if that's a wise thing to do, because sometimes you'll end up reaping the the sort of consequences of these kind of decisions way down the track. And we're certainly seeing that in many, many police forces right now. Many police forces at that time, and you know, sold off buildings, uh, or they 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 reduced their staff. They made huge numbers uh, redundant, or they moved away from what they thought were ancillary duties like community engagement or diversity and inclusion. And now, if you look at uh, where the police service is right now, I think you used a phrase. 
I don't think the police service has been in this uh, position of being seen publicly as an enemy uh, for quite some time. And I think there is something within that if you look at all the rhetoric in the press. So what do you think is happening there? Why is it that some organisations make these reactive, knee-jerk decisions when they are faced with challenges and yet others play the longer game? What's going on there, do you think? A lot of it inevitably boils down to the emotional intelligence of the people making the decisions, be that the chief exec or the board or uh, you know the, the investors. As you know probably better than I do, uh, the, the limbic brain, the old part of our brain, hasn't really evolved in mm. 100,000 years. So we're still programmed to respond to stress situations the way we were, you know, 20, 30,000 years ago when we saw, a, you know, a big tiger, you know, and it's coming towards camp, panic. So we have the four responses, fight, flight, freeze, or flock. Now, we haven't really changed, uh, you know, massively since that time. So when we're hit with a stressful situation, we will go into fight, flight, freeze, or flock. Mm. And when a business is under financial stress, we don't always think at our most clear. You know, we think, right, we've got to deal with this. We've got to act now. Uh, so what are the big high-cost items? Well, uh, the training budget's too high, um, and the marketing budget, oof, far, far too high. Let's kill those things because there's not yeah, necessarily yeah. a measurable material return imminently. You know, the, the training uh, your staff to be better, investing in marketing and promotion, those are things that manifest and deliver further down the line. So if it's not something that has an immediate and measurable return, they sort of get targeted quite quickly. Uh, but, you know, again, generally by the finance team because the finance team are responsible for that bottom line. And they think in a very clinical kind of way as well, don't they, the finance team? They, they will t think very much, you know, in terms of the, the, the figures in front of them, the black and white, whereas actually a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is the grey. It is about having the courage to get out of that limbic brain, to not make that emotional decision, uh, and to actually get into that prefrontal cortex where you're making rational, objective, thought-through decisions and say, actually, you know what? I'm going to go through the pain. I'm going to work through the pain because I know that if I keep investing in my people, for example, through training, uh, or I keep investing in the community involvement and the interaction, I know that this is going to pay off in the longer term. And they do say that it's in the most challenging of times that you see the more successful companies coming through because they make these brave decisions, right? Absolutely. You know, there's that old quote i can't remember who who it's been attributed to but it's you know this is the story about the the chief financial financial officer going to the chief exec and saying you know uh what happens if we train all these people and they leave and the chief exec says and what happens if we don't train them and they stay you know and yeah, it's that sort that. of it's that sort of position where um you know it's about the short term versus the long term and and you know the CFO rightly is thinking about that year's EBITDA that year's profit and and you know and that because that's their target so it's about having aligned goals it's about everybody in an organization being aware of what their responsibility is what their contribution is and how it builds up to the organization the organization achieving its overall uh, goals and you know again it, you go back to that potentially apocryphal story of of uh, president kennedy 
visiting Cape Canaveral in, in the mid 60s and, you know, allegedly being introduced to the janitor and saying to the janitor, and what do you do here? And the janitor saying, I'm helping put a man on the moon, sir. You know, I play a tiny role. I just make sure the toilets are clean and there's, you know, there's tiles for them to dry their hands on. But I'm helping put a man on the moon. That's what, to me, that's what every organization needs is absolute clarity of, you know, why am I coming to work today? What is my contribution? And what does my contribution mean to the organization? Where do I fit in? And it's creating that sense of purpose. And I think right now, um, this is a real opportunity as well as a challenge. It's a real opportunity for many, many organizations to ask themselves, okay, um, so we're faced with these financial challenges right now. You know, the, the, the cost of utilities is going up. The cost of fuel is going up. Um, and we're under some pressure as an organization. But the opportunity here is, can I create a synergized environment in which everybody recognizes that they are playing a significant part in putting a man on the moon, using the metaphor for whatever their business outcome is. And how do we do that? What is it that, uh, what is the opportunity that staring CEOs, MDs, uh, chairmen of the board, chairwomen of the board, what is the opportunity that's staring them in the face, would you say, Stuart? There's a, a great measure around it uh, about uh, emotional intelligence. It's one of the subscales, it's, it's impulse control, and it's the ability to, it's learning how to respond rather than react. And, and frankly, I'm very much more a reactor. You know, I, I've, I have to work really hard to respond to difficult situations. And what chief execs have to accept and understand, what organizations need to accept and understand is they're all far too busy doing the doing. You know, they're too busy in the day-to-day -day grind. And when, you know, when it, when it hits the fan, when the pressure ramps up and, and people are in a difficult situation, the really smart thing to do is to call a timeout is to just go, okay, stop. What are we doing? You know, what is it we should do more of? What is it we should do less of? Not just start getting the big red pen out and going, stop that, stop that, stop that, stop that. And, uh, you know, most people will be aware of the, the Japanese uh, approach of Kaizen, continuous improvement. And continuous improvement is absolutely fantastic. It's a great option. But... It's only a great option if what you're starting with is working reasonably well. And then you can make it slightly better and slightly better and slightly better. If what you've got is fundamentally flawed or just isn't working, why try to, to improve it? Why not just go, okay, time out. Here's a blank sheet of paper. This is where we're at today. This is the current situation. This is really what's going on today. Based on where we are and what the reality is, Here's a blank sheet of paper. What would we build? What would it look like if we were to build something starting today? So forget history, forget reality, because those things constrain your thinking. Start from scratch. If we were building an organization today, we'd do this. But in order for a company, to, and I absolutely agree with you, I think that's, that, that is what most organizations should be doing. And, and, you know, there's lots of lessons to be learned from sport because this is what happens in sport, particularly in team sports. You have timeouts. You have the coach saying, okay, guys, what is going on here? What is it that we need to achieve? What do we need to tweak to get there? 
Um, but in order for us to have that, and you, you mentioned forget history, forget the way that we've always done things. Um, essentially what we're saying is move away from the group think, move away from the echo chambers, you know, the way things have always been done. And we're trying to bring some creativity and innovation into the conversation. But in order for us to do that, we all, we have to have already invested in the people to feel brave enough to bring alternative solutions to the table. So that it's, it's sort of squaring off the circle a bit in the sense that if you five years previously have given up on people development, on creating a culture whereby people feel courageous enough to bring an alternative solution, a different way of thinking, what I call cognitive diversity to the table, only then at your most difficult times are you going to have this beautiful depth of uh, thinking and breadth of thinking that can actually maybe help you to thrive when times are bad, not rather than just survive. There's this whole thing about allegedly Steve Jobs said, I would never employ brilliant people and then tell them what to do. Now, the rumor is that's exactly what Steve Jobs did, but you know, it's a great line. And you look at, uh, you know, I have to be very cautious here because some of you might pick up an act, uh, sort of a hint of an accent, um, uh, uh, from me, although I've lived in England uh, 39 years, but there's, I, I'm told there's at least a modicum. I was, I was thinking, Steve, uh, Stuart, that I was thinking that's a strange Leicester accent that I've got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's uh, thoroughbred. I wouldn't, uh, it's Northern Irish anyway, but uh, yeah, I've lived here a long time, but it's still, I, I still hang on to it. But so I have to be careful about, you know, uh, what I talk about in terms of rugby. But I think if you look at England rugby over the last few years. You know, they, they, it feels like they were coached within an inch of their lives. And they've got some startlingly, you know, brilliant, innovative players. You know, Marcus Smith at, at, at fly half. And when you watch Marcus Smith playing for England, you could see his brain. I, I think I can see his brain working, sort of going, ah, there's a gap. And then his his other bit of the brain goes, oh, hang on. We weren't told to behave like this. So right. and by which time somebody smashed him. So you've got people who are potentially coached within an inch of their lives. You happen to look, it's, I, it's a wonderful coincidence that Ireland as a, as a team are playing pretty well at the moment. Those guys go onto the pitch and they know that they can adapt and they hold each other accountable. And, you know, the leadership of Andy Farrell, particularly as the head coach, he's all about inspiration and empowerment. So he inspires the guys uh, to, to do their best, and then empowers them to get on with it. And isn't that uh, also what we see when we when we look at Gareth South, Southgate with the in England uh, football team? It's a wholly different way of leading and managing, and consequently they've gone on to do far better than they have done for decades as a, as a result of that. And I think all around us, emotional intelligence and leadership is abundantly apparent in terms of what can come from that. Uh, in terms of politics, uh, you know, one of my favourite politicians uh, to have observed is Jacinda Ardern and how she brings EQ into politics. And also, it's, it's not just how she behaves, but what the outcomes have been for New Zealand, particularly in the response to uh, the pandemic and the, the whole COVID experience. It, it's one of those things. I, I panicked twice there, cool. when you were speaking. One was you started talking about football, which is something I have I have absolutely no no grasp of whatsoever. No interest. And then the thing that really frightened me was when you said one of your favourite politicians. 
because uh, you know that that's sort of oh, that set me off on all sorts of different tangents. But you 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 pulled it back beautifully by saying Jacinda Ardern. Can, can I just say I don't have many favourite politicians no, at the moment? Uh, clearly not. But uh, yeah, Jacinda, what she brought to politics was was staggeringly wonderful, and and it's something that is you know, it's about integrity. She you're. She would stand up and say mm. what she believed, and if people didn't like it and didn't vote for her, that's fine, that's okay, you know. So she wasn't playing to the audience, and, and that I think is what's sadly lacking. Um, you know, there's a there's a quote from Andy Oliver, uh, the celebrity chef, uh, who when talked when asked about the, the current crop of politicians in the UK, she said it's sad their only interest is self, and it's quite apparent as well. It's quite apparent. It's not as if they're they're not even trying to hide it very well, and that that worries me. Look, know? it's one of those things. I sort of when when I built the business a better version, uh, sort of five years ago, and I started typing up what what is it we do, and I built the website, and and inadvertently I, I've created uh, a little story. I, I you know we used to as 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 business people we used to talk about the five P's of marketing, so product, price, positioning, placement, and promotion. Those might not be accurate, by the way, but but inadvertently I've created the five Ps of nonsense, and they are politics, posturing, positioning, power plays, and point scoring. Love it. And the, the five Ps of nonsense, uh, you know, ultimately when you think about each of them, you know, I can go into a description of them, but they're all about self. You know, politics, it's all about, let me tell you how brilliant I am. It's about positioning me in a different way. Power plays is about showing I'm better than the other person. Point scoring is demonstrating that I'm better. And, you know, I did some work with with the All Blacks uh, pre-Christmas, and I've done quite a bit of stuff over the years with uh, Special Forces. And I talk to them about the five Ps of nonsense, and I say to them, so which of the five Ps, again, politics, posturing, positioning, power plays, and point scoring, which of those do you focus on most? And how much time per week would you dedicate to those things? And they, they sort of, this look of absolute horror comes up. You know, the response is, hang on, we don't do that stuff. Why would we do any of that? So my pushback then is, why do we allow it to happen in business? Why do we permit it to happen? Now, the bottom line is, candidly, a lot of it's human nature. You know, people people want to push themselves forward. That's quite natural. That's okay. So it's it's acceptable. The five P's of nonsense are tolerable, but only when they're done to a certain level. I'm really intrigued by the five P's, and you talk about human behavior, uh, and. In in a in a sense, it's not almost as, it's not as if we need to point a finger at these people and say you've got these five Ps and therefore it's your fault. Actually, I wonder if this is a societal thing because uh, I have this thing that um, from the moment that we are able to communicate, we are taught to compete. 
we live in a very, very competitive world. We compete with our siblings. You go to school. You're taught to compete with your fellow students. You compete in the job that you get. You go through competitive processes to get promoted, etc., etc. Business is a competitive process, and you're bidding for this against somebody else. So in this environment that is the world, where we live in this competitive world, you constantly are pushed to compete. It's no wonder that many, many leaders and organizations end up exhibiting the five Ps that you're talking about. So part of what we do, I guess, is going into them and uh, going into these organizations, coaching these leaders and say, hey, there is a different way of thinking. Uh, and all it's all that's happened is that you've become programmed and you become brainwashed to think in this way. But that is exerting an incredible amount of pressure and is not serving you as much as you perhaps think it is. And actually, if, there's, if you think in an alternative way, I often talk about, you know, when everyone else turns right, you turn left because the it's, it's the uh, it's the path that's not been trod before. And so you'll see things that other people don't see. So you'll see a different perspective in life and have different opportunities. So maybe it's just about, you know, just changing and shifting the, the, the perception that people have to, for them to see in a wholly different way. Yeah, look, there's an outstanding business book. We talked about legacy and James Care. There's an outstanding book by a guy called Patrick Lencioni. It's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yeah. Um, if, if you're book, ever yeah. going to read it, try and find the manga version, the Japanese cartoon version, because it's just so much more digestible because it's done in a cartoon format. Um, and it gets a, it gets gets rid of some of the chewy stuff, but fundamentally, it's it's a sort of a, a hierarchy like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is a five step hierarchy. It starts with trust. It's then conflict. It's commitment. It's accountability, and it's results. The thing about most organisations is they're at the conflict stage, but the conflict stage is not built on trust. So there's different layers and different types of trust. So for me, it's always about creating that foundation and that foundation, everything else is going to be as stable as your foundation is strong. So no, no, as you say, not many companies are going out there and say, hey, do you know what? We're going to build a culture of trust in this organization. But they'll engage in the conflict because they're having meetings, they're discussing things, but because there's no trust there, then, organize, then people are coming to that meeting with maybe their, their own agendas, silent mentality, uh, frustrations, uh, and of course, everything falls uh, falls apart as you go further up that pyramid. Another great book recommendation, by the way, Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lenciani. One, probably one of my favorite books out there. I haven't seen the Japanese version, so I'm going to go and seek that one out. But uh, if you listen to it on audio... Actually, it's even better on audio, I find. Not many books are, but this one is particularly... Because it's, it's like a, a story. It's like a, fun, a fictional story that he creates in this book, but it actually makes a lot of sense in audio. The thing I love about, uh, frankly, any of these approaches, they're very simple. It's very straightforward. You know, in, on my website, I talk about the great joy of what we do. Called, it doesn't require brain surgery. It doesn't require a PhD in astrophysics. This stuff is really very simple, but the one thing that that you know again, I I, I can I love saying this when I when I'm with organisations, you know I stand up very grandly and and just arrogantly announce that, you know you guys are all very successful, you're great at what you do, but there is one thing that I have that none of you have, and you can see them all sort of the hackles going up and they're ready to push back, and I go, time, I have time to step back and think and observe. You know, I, I get to 
I get to see what you guys are doing. I'm not worrying about 150 emails a day and six meetings and four meetings you're preparing for and a board report. I don't have to worry about that stuff. I just get to look at behaviors. And more importantly, I get to look at the impact of the behaviors. So that whole thing you were saying about, about conflict and point scoring and all the rest of it, I, I genuinely don't believe anybody wakes up in the morning and thinks, do you know what? Today, I'm going to be a right pain in the backside. But, but lots of people are a right pain in the backside. They just don't know it. And, and sometimes it's the ability just to explain to people, did you, you, know, did you notice the way uh, Cole reacted when you said that, Stuart? No, no I didn't. I, I was too busy making my point. Well, okay. I think I think you really upset Cole. Did 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 I? Oh, I, I didn't mean to. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I know you didn't mean to. So sometimes it's about helping people just become a little bit more aware of the impact they have. And uh, you know, once you get through that, there's a there's a wonderful expression uh, that, rightly or wrongly, I attribute to to Simon Sinek, uh, and he said. Uh, People who work hard to show their strength reveal their weakness. People who make no attempt to hide their weakness reveal their strength. I love that one. I've not heard that one before. That makes so much sense as well. It, it sort of sends chills up my spine, that one does. Uh, and, you know, we're coming close to the, uh, the, the the end of this, but what a fascinating conversation to you. I've really enjoyed it. I want you to leave us with one piece of wisdom, uh, and I want you to really focus in. I'm going to put you under some pressure. I'm going to focus in on what you've just talked about in terms of observing leaders and looking for those, I guess, microaggressions that we very often display as leaders when we're working in that competitive environment. And you're absolutely right. Nobody, I, I genuinely believe that most people are good, hardworking people who just want to do well. Nobody wants to go around upsetting people, but inevitably we do because of the environment in which we operate. So what's one piece of wisdom that you would like to leave the leaders who are listening to this podcast right now to be the very best version of themselves? I, I think, uh, and as you said, you put me on the spot. I, I think what, what sort of what comes to me uh, off the cuff is be brave. There's this this wonderful, reasonably new concept about reverse mentoring, and it's it's a, it's a you know, we all think of mentoring as the senior guy mentoring the juniors, and actually reverse mentoring is the juniors mentoring the seniors, and you know it's about you know it's it's about taking feedback from people in your organization. So if you are you know, if you think you're being assertive and actually you're being aggressive, you need to know. You need to listen to what's going on in your organization and be prepared to be told that you're you're wrong and accept it for the right reasons. I think reverse mentoring is so, so powerful. But in order for you to be able to receiving feedback like this, you have to create that environment, let's not forget, where people are feeling brave enough to be able to give you that feedback. And then you need to react and respond, or rather respond rather than react to the feedback that's given. Stuart, it's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's almost like looking in a mirror and talking to myself, but with a lot more wisdom coming from the other side. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. 
Take care. Have a great day.